You're listening to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. Support for this project is provided by listeners like you. Visit my website at p3photographers.net for ideas on how you too can become a supporter of the project. Welcome to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols, the podcast where we celebrate early women artisan photographers. I'm your host, Lee McIntyre. I'm excited today to bring you the start of season three here on Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. This season, it's all about connections. For more information about any of the women discussed in today's episode, visit my website at p3photographers.net. That's letter P, number three, photographers.net. Today, we're going to explore connections, specifically the kinds of connections that we might find between photographers working in the same town or in different towns at the same time or in different time periods, but connected by other things, people, or events. Now, I've been talking about connections between photographers for a while. I profiled all of those women in Blue Rapids and also all the women in Lowell, Massachusetts. Those women were connected by place, but also some of them by time periods because they were contemporaries working together in the same town. But it's not just connections to other photographers that I want to talk about, because as I've been doing this podcast research, I've been stumbling across interesting bits of information that connect the photographers that I'm talking about to other kinds of people, places, and famous events, things that were unexpected to run across, particularly since they had a connection to one of our early women photographers. Along the way, I'll continue to explore the same kinds of multi-threaded narratives that we've been talking about all along. So as I mentioned at the end of season two last time, I really want to figure out how I can bring you more of these women and more of their stories And here in season three, we're going to do that by looking at connections between different photographers. To start things off, I want to go back to episode 22, when I talked about a woman named Belle Bybee Chase. I'm going to refer you back to episode 22 for a lot of the details about Belle Bybee Chase. But I want to focus in on one aspect of her career, the point at which she was living and working in Denver, Colorado. It's the late 1890s, and she's just gotten divorced from D.B. Chase. D.B. Chase, who had also been a photographer, had moved away from Denver, and Belle Bybee Chase got the business after he left. She builds that into a very successful, high-society kind of business there in Denver in the late 1890s. And so circa 1900, it probably comes as no surprise that she's the one that a high-society mother picks to actually take a picture of her high society daughter. The daughter's name was Cornelia Baxter. She was a very popular debutante there in Denver in the late 1890s. She's been engaged to a young man named Gerald Hughes. He's very prominent, the son of a Colorado senator, and a very good match for our wealthy debutante, Cornelia Baxter. But in 1901, Cornelia and her parents embark on a trip to San Francisco, leaving Cornelia's fiancé, Gerald, behind. Cornelia meets a very wealthy businessman in San Francisco, a man named Hugh Tevis. Now, Hugh Tevis actually had been married before, and he had a young daughter. 
but he and Cornelia fall in love. And when Cornelia gets back to Denver, she announces that she is jilting Gerald Hughes in favor of a marriage with Hugh Tevis. Now, Gerald Hughes is not that happy. He famously vows, I will be revenged, because he's very upset about Cornelia dumping him. While they're waiting for the marriage to take place and the wedding stuff to be sorted out, Cornelia's back in Denver, and Hugh Tevis, her new intended, is still in San Francisco. So Cornelia's mother goes to B.B. Chase and asks Mrs. Chase to take a picture of her daughter, the idea being that that picture will be sent to Hugh Tevis so that he will not forget his beautiful intended before the wedding date. The picture is taken and put in a frame, but before it can be sent to San Francisco, somebody actually breaks into B.B. Chase's studio and steals the photo, as the quote says in the paper, right out of the frame. Suspicion falls, of course, on Gerald Hughes. After all, he did vow revenge. But ultimately, that is not enough to break up Hugh and Cornelia, and they are actually married in 1901. They immediately set sail for a honeymoon trip to Asia. Sadly, just a few months after their marriage, and while they're still on their honeymoon there in Japan, Hugh Tevis takes ill and dies. Cornelia is left with her young stepdaughter, and also, as it turns out, she's already pregnant with the son who will become Hugh Tevis Jr. Cornelia Baxter Tevis goes on to have a really colorful life, and this story about that picture being stolen is dredged up every single time she's in the news. Now, you see, she's in the news because of her subsequent marriages and subsequent really, really messy divorces. Ultimately, Cornelia Baxter becomes Cornelia Baxter Tevis McKee Tumlin Gower. Again, Cornelia was not a photographer, and her story is only tangentially related to the early women photographers, but that's a kind of what I call unexpected development when I'm looking for these early women photographers. It's a bit of interesting information that is related to the photographer, but not really involving a direct participation of the photographer in the ultimate events. I mean, obviously, Mrs. B.B. Chase took that photo, but the ultimate events didn't have anything to do with Mrs. B.B. Chase. So that's the unexpected development kind of connection that we have with some of our early women photographers. But if we go back to Colorado in the 1890s, we find a different kind of connection when we look at the next woman photographer, a woman named Julia Scholes. Now, Julia Scholes was a contemporary of B.B. Chase, only in the sense of working at the same time period in Colorado. She was active in Colorado Springs in the late 1890s, just like B.B. Chase was active in Denver in the late 1890s. Julia Scholes had a really long career, first in Colorado Springs for more or less 10 years. Then she moves to the mining town of Cripple Creek, Colorado, where she is active for about 17 years, taking pictures in a studio, doing artisan photography, you know, the portraits of the men and the women and the kids, but also taking pictures in the mines. And she's really famous for pictures she actually took inside mines. Now, again, this is in the early 1900s, and the technology that existed then to get those kind of pictures, it wasn't like there was a simple flash, more like flash powder, which if you think about the fact that you're doing flash powder kind of shots inside a mine, a little bit dangerous, but Julia Scholes knew what she was doing. 
She's also noted for these wonderful landscape views that she sold as postcards. And these landscape views are just spectacular vistas that she also hand-painted, sort of colorizing things, again, in the early 1900s. After her long tenure in Cripple Creek, Colorado, she ultimately moves to Denver, Colorado, where she operates doing photography for another, well, not quite 10 years, until she moves back to her native Wisconsin toward the end of her life, and that's actually where she dies. Now, the Pikes Peak Library District Digital Collections has a lot of online scanned images by Julia Scholas, and I'll put a link in the episode notes to those. So it was wonderful to see this very vibrant woman doing lots and lots of photography for decades, running a very successful photography business in several different locations there in Colorado. One thing that always sort of amuses me, though, when I run across it, is that there is a description of her in one of the online sites, which has great information about her. But the comment is made that she's only one of a handful of successful pioneer women photographers whose work is still available to see. Hopefully, if you've been listening to Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols, you'll agree with me that it's not quite the case that she's the really only one of a few women whose work still survives. The problem is figuring out where it is and how to see it. But hopefully you get the idea that Julia Scholas just adds to this body of early women photographers' work that I've been talking about here on the podcast. Now, in doing research on Julia Scholas, I ran across a notice for a woman named Julia Bottomley. Now, Julia Bottomley was actually active as a photographer in 1894, working with her husband, T.F. Bottomley. Julia and her husband, T.F., were actually active in Kentucky before they ever moved to Colorado. But then in the early 1890s, there's a notice in the papers that said that T.F. Bottomley's studio burned down. Maybe that gave the impetus to actually move to Colorado. They do show up in Colorado in 1892, taking up a studio there in Pueblo, Colorado. Now, Pueblo, Colorado actually has another connection to B.B. Chase, at least of a sort, Her husband, D.B. Chase, the one who had been the photographer with her in Denver, well, he had been a photographer actually in Pueblo, Colorado, many years before in the 1870s. I don't think it's possible that there was any crossover between D.B. Chase and the Bottomleys in Pueblo, Colorado, but it was intriguing to see that they were in the same spot at least, even if it was about 15 years apart. Anyway, Julia Bottomley is actively doing photography by the early 1890s. Her husband is running the studio, but she's going around doing photography in different places. There's actually a notice that she's in Kansas at one point doing photography. Then she goes to Tennessee to do some photography, some sort of course or something. It's not really clear what's going on. But then the intriguing thing about the Bottomleys is that there's a confusing set of notices, circa 1896, that talks about a divorce, Sort of, because in January of 1896, there's a notice that the divorce suit has been dismissed. But then in March of 1896, two months later, Julia has actually been granted the divorce and the custody of their children. But then it seems like they're still living together. But maybe it's around that time that the marriage is not going well that Julia takes up another profession. Now, she's still doing photography, but simultaneous with that, she starts to do fashion writing, writing about fashions of the day. 
By the early 1900s, Julia Bonnelly has left photography behind, pursuing instead full-time that career doing fashion writing. When I'm looking at my computer, I'm looking at a picture right now of Julia Bottomley from her 1924 passport application. She's got a very serious expression on her face. She looks very prim and proper. Her hair is pulled back. She's got spectacles on and a nice lace collar. In that same passport application, it's mentioned that her husband died in 1902. The curious thing about that, though, is that T.F. Bottomley, her husband, actually advertises in a Kentucky paper looking for photography work as late as 1908. Now on Ancestry.com, I did find someone who had pieced together the T.F. Bottomley that I think is Julia Bottomley's husband, and he actually doesn't die until 1910. So it would seem that Julia Bottomley called herself a widow rather prematurely starting in 1902, And that may indicate that maybe they did ultimately get a divorce. I certainly have seen other divorced women describe themselves as widows after the divorce. But Julia Bottomley, while she gives up photography, she is incredibly successful as a fashion writer. She is a syndicated columnist, syndicated all over the United States, and also travels to Europe, which is what she's doing in 1924, reporting on fashion. What was really fun was to find that one of her big articles, circa 1915, was actually on one of the new trends and the novel shapes in something of the day, the very fashionable parasol. And because my podcast is Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols, that was particularly fun to find Julia Bottomley. Even though she gives up the photography, she still has connections to things that are related to this podcast, like the parasols. And that's another kind of connection in that Julia Bonnemley was a photographer, but seemingly not for terribly long, just several years, but then she goes off in another direction and has a very interesting career that doesn't really have much to do with photography, but still very worthy of note. Again, looking around for information about the Bonnemleys, ran across information about another woman who opened her studio in another small town called Black Hawk, Colorado, in 1871, 20 years before. Now that woman's name was Mrs. R.A. Clark. Mrs. R.A. Clark was Mrs. Robert A. Clark. Her given name was Lucinda. Now in 1871, there's a notice in the newspaper announcing the opening of new photographic rooms run by Mrs. R.A. Clark. Unlike Mrs. Bonnemley, Mrs. R.A. Clark had not been married to a photographer. When she opens up her studio, she does it solely as a means of support for herself and her young daughter. She had been left a widow just a couple of years earlier, and without any means of support, she has happened on photography as the way she's going to be able to make money. In trying to research Lucinda Clark, we ran across some interesting information that, again, had very little to do with photography, but it was another set of connections to interesting events and other interesting, noteworthy people. Let's start with Robert A. Clark, Mrs. R.A. Clark's husband. It turned out that he'd been a marshal there in Colorado, and he was killed in the line of duty in 1869. Mrs. Clark is widowed, and the city actually 
takes up a collection, essentially, to give her a small pension to help her and her daughter initially right after her husband dies. But Robert A. Clark is very famous because he was the first marshal killed in action in Colorado. There's a monument to him in Colorado. And learning about him just opened up this whole avenue of exploration of something that I'd never looked into, which was the history of law enforcement in Colorado. So that was the first interesting connection and side story for Mrs. R.A. Clark. But in looking at some records, I realized that the little girl who was the daughter left when Robert A. Clark died was actually named Sophia Dougherty and not Sophia Clark. In other words, Lucinda Clark's little girl was not Robert A. Clark's daughter. So who was she? So digging a little bit deeper, it turned out that Lucinda Clark was actually born Lucinda Converse. And Lucinda Converse was married to a man named Michael Duggerty, circa 1860. And Michael Duggerty is actually famous in Denver for being Denver's first comedian. That's what's on his headstone. So he famously founded this theater troupe in Denver and is written up in books, and his wife is mentioned in passing, and then is mentioned in passing when he dies as he left a widow with a small child. So the daughter that she has with Michael Duggerty is the daughter that is left after her second husband, Robert Clark, is killed. So that was another interesting side story in the history of Denver's theater uh, district and the theater companies that first played in Colorado. Fascinating, and he, Michael Duggerty was a fascinating character all in his own right. But again, just an interesting side story connected to our photographer, Mrs. R.A. Clark. Now, Mrs. R.A. Clark runs that photography studio there in Blackhawk, Colorado, for just a couple of years. Unfortunately, in 1873, there's a huge fire in town, and Mrs. Clark's studio is one of the many businesses destroyed. There's no evidence that she ever tried to reopen her gallery while she does collect some insurance money on it, but perhaps that gives her enough money to live on for a while. It's not entirely clear what she does over the next few years, the next major event that pops up in her life is sadly another tragedy when, in 1879, her daughter Sophia dies at the age of only 16. But then, in 1884, we find a happy event in Lucinda's life. That's the year she moves on and marries again to a man named Richard W. Mosley. It doesn't appear that she ever did photography again after she left Blackhawk. So that might have been where the story ended, but... What was intriguing was running across yet a third connection for Mrs. Robert A. Clark, because it turns out that one of the things she did after her marriage to her last husband, Richard Mosley, was she founded something called the Social Order of the Beausant. Let me read you the description from their brochure. The Social Order of the Beausant is an organization of Christian women whose membership is limited to the wives and widows of the Knights Templar. It was founded in Denver, Colorado in February of 1890. Now, I'd never heard of the Women's Order of the Knights Templar. It turns out that Richard Bosley, her last husband, was a very prominent Knights Templar, and she and some other women thought it would be great to have a women's organization affiliated with that group. It was founded by Lucinda 
Converse, Dougherty, Clark, Mosley, the woman who had been a photographer for a couple of years after her martial husband was killed in action there in the 1870s. So those are some examples of the various kinds of connections that I run across when I'm doing these kinds of explorations of the early women photographers. And in the episodes this season, for the next eight episodes, I'm going to be exploring some more connections like this. So in our next episode, we're going to take up the connection with Mrs. R.A. Clark by looking at one of her contemporaries to when she opened that studio there in Colorado. Well, at the same time, there was a woman running an early studio in Lawrence, Kansas. That connection in terms of these two women running studios at the same time, but in different locations, will actually lead us back to Kansas. We're going to be on the trail of a rather mysterious woman, which will also then lead to a very unusual story about a famous event and also the launch of a photographic dynasty. All of those stories are coming up in the next episode. I hope you'll join me. Before I end today, I do want to thank several people. First of all, Bill Thompson and the research staff at the Pikes Peak Library District Special Collections Room. I really want to thank them for pointing me toward the information they have about Julia Scholas, as well as about some other women who will pop up eventually here on Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols. Anyway, I really want to thank the staff for their help when I stopped by last year to use research materials in their reference room, including their microfilm collection. I also want to give a special shout out to thank Marley and Friends for the wonderful review they left for the podcast on Apple Podcast, formerly known as iTunes. Anyway, in the episode notes, I'll include links to the information they have about Julia Scholas and also to all the digital photos that appear in the Pikes Peak Library District digital collection online. I also want to thank Jillian Allison and Mike Erickson and the staff at the Center for Colorado Women's History for inviting me to stop by to give a special talk to staff back in April. They all actually got a sneak preview of some of the material that I've included in today's episode. The Center for Colorado Women's History is new and it's a wonderful museum in an historic mansion full of interesting items, including some old family photographs that we look through looking for examples by women photographers. That reminds me, I do give presentations periodically and workshops about these early women photographers. I tailor the material to include women and subjects to match the interests and areas of the groups that invite me. If you're interested in having me stop by to give a talk, just contact me at podcast at p3photographers.net. Now, as always, materials that I've talked about today will be available on the website in the notes for today's episode at p3photographers.net. That's letter P, number three, photographers.net. I'm going to include photos taken by Julia Scholas, writings by Julia Bottomley, and photos of Lucinda Converse Duggerty Clark Mosley and two of her three husbands. Plus, I'll include a photo of Cornelia Baxter and two of her three children from the period when she was known as Cornelia Baxter Tevis McKee. Unfortunately, I don't have the photo that was taken by Mrs. B.B. Chase and then stolen from her studio, but it's still going to be fun to get a glimpse of Cornelia herself. Other work by Mrs. Chase, of course, 
can be found in the notes for episode 22. Also, I want to give a special thanks to all the listeners who alerted me this week to some photos by Mrs. B.B. Chase, which are currently listed on eBay. These turned out to be artistically styled photos of young women posing a la Venus. For some young, daring, modern, wealthy women circa 1900, posing for their portraits artistically draped in gauzy cloth, garlands of flowers, and little else was all the rage. And it turns out that Mrs. B.B. Chase was a talented portrait artist for studio portraits of all types. You'll need to search for those photos on eBay yourself, since any link I'll put now in the episode notes would be out of date once they're sold. But in any case, I really want to thank the listeners who alerted me to these items that are currently for sale. If you run across anything else like that related to early women photographers, or if in general you have any questions or comments, just drop me a line at podcast at p3photographers.net or follow me on Facebook at facebook.com p3photographers and then contact me that way. This podcast relies on the support of listeners like you. One free way to help more people find the podcast is to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. For other ideas on how you too can become a supporter of the project, go to my website at p3photographers.net. That's it for today. As always, thanks for stopping by. Until next time, I'm Lee, and this is Photographs, Pistols, and Parasols.